0: We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hi there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. At the moment, we're talking to built environment professionals about what can be learned from unbuilt work, and if it's possible to learn from designs that don't get tested in bricks and mortar. Our guest in this episode is Fred Holt from 3XN Architects. 3XN Architects is a multinational architecture firm with its head office in Copenhagen, Denmark, and Fred is a partner in their Sydney studio. 3XN also has a sustainability and research arm to their studio called GXN, where they rethink architecture, spaces and materials. Fred shares with us how 3XN approaches their built and unbuilt projects, how 3XN integrates their research work into their architectural services, and how the Australian architecture market compares to the speculative and competition work taking place overseas. I'll now hand over to Sally Sue, who is an Imagine representative based in New South Wales. Let's jump in.
1: Hi, Fred. Today we're lucky enough to have Fred Holt from 3XN join us in his new Sydney studio in Surrey Hills today. Today i want to introduce our topic, unbuilt projects, and today we're going to tease out a different angle on what unbuilt projects means to 3XN, to Fred and his team here, and introduce and relate it to some of his recent projects that have now finished in Sydney and ongoing on construction sites at the moment. Fred, it's great to have you on board here today, and we've heard a lot about 3XN through the recent media post, and we're very pleased to see key quarters finish in Sydney right now. In relation to the unbuilt projects topic today, mm-hmm. maybe I can begin by having you introduce to us how you see that topic and how it relates to 3XN's portfolio of
2: work to date,
1: specifically in Sydney.
2: Okay, great. Thank you for having me. Unbuilt architecture, I suppose it, it's typically thought of as, well, architects usually will say uh, some of their best work is unbuilt work. and. Sometimes that's true, other times you know, it, it, it's not. But I think the, the idea of unbuilt work and this topic usually refers to unbuilt work that wasn't completed or didn't win a competition because maybe it was perceived as too experimental, too far out there. I think the way we work at 3XN is to treat uh, every project the same way. So we don't treat one project differently because of the you know potential of that project from another one. Architecture uh, shaping behavior is one way that we approach architecture, and the other is constraints inform the architecture. Those two things apply to work that we've won, and they apply to work that we were not as fortunate to win. And what I mean by that is when we talk about architecture shaping behavior, I'm talking about designing around a user experience and essentially enhancing that everyday experience of, of the user. And I think Some of you that are listening to this may have heard me speak previously and probably heard me say this, but when you start your design approach thinking about the user experience, you no longer think about architecture in the same way you'd be having a conversation with your friends that are architects. You start thinking about how that space is going to be used, what's the experience of that everyday user, and it honestly changes the way you approach design, it changes the way you put pen to paper you really work on enhancing that experience. And the other mantra, um, constraints inform the architecture, is allowing for uh, setbacks, uh, solar conditions, a brief, a mechanical brief, anything that comes into project development to start informing the architecture, informing the shaping of the architecture. That way, at the end of the process, you have an informed design, not just form. So those two things really summarize quite well how we approach our work at 3XM and the idea of talking about unbuilt work I I would say maybe we'd have to flip the conversation a a bit I think it was mentioned how does our unbuilt work influence uh, our built work or our new projects I would say for us at 3XM a lot of it now is our built work influencing our unbuilt work I can talk about a couple of examples, in particular Key Quarter Tower and the Sydney Fish Market, if, um, if you'd like to hear about that.
1: Definitely, because I think unbuilt projects stem from all aspects of the projects. Mm. And we often hear you talk about architect shapes, behaviour and constraints mm. inform the architecture. Mm-hmm. And I think it's impressive that you've just introduced some of your work through all of the intangible aspects that we might not even notice, Mm -hmm. because it's not just about the aesthetics, it's not just about the form, but really how the inside works. Mm -hmm. And if you can tell us more about how Key Quarter, in our recent um, projects of fish markets, Mm -hmm. takes on those values, it'd be great to share with our listeners.
2: Sure. 3XN, GXN. GXN is our in-house sustainability arm of the office, also focusing on behavioural research. Um, We focus on three types of sustainability in the office, on every project. Occasionally, that's a built project, and occasionally, unfortunately, it's an unbuilt project. But social sustainability, environmental sustainability, and then also uh, urban sustainability or urban revitalization. In the case of both Key Quarter Tower and the Sydney Fish Market, those three became paramount in how we actually uh, started talking about the architecture and designing the architecture for Key Quarter Tower. The social uh, sustainability was key in the overall design of the project. We designed it from the inside out. We took the idea of a horizontal campus, typical campus, that created a sense of community, which focused on human behavior, ample amounts of daylight is what a campus uh, typically has, as well as access to green space, and we stacked that up into uh, a tower. So. Once we had the idea about designing uh, around those social behaviours, trying to create this sense of community versus just an efficient stack slab scenario, then we started to move towards looking at the overall site constraints and the urban condition. The shaping of the building is actually to fit within the solar plane, um, so not to overshadow the botanical gardens and the domain. For example, the shaping of the facade or the creation of the facade which gives the building its texture, its identity, its character. But it's doing so much more than that. It's actually performing, it's blocking out uh, 30% of the solar radiance. So this particular project in front of the most recognizable harbor in the world doesn't need blinds or or shades to come down to control temperature control. So that's a passive sustainable approach. And therefore, environmentally, it saves mechanical load. It also makes for a more efficient floor plate because you're pushing less air through risers, which means they can get smaller, you have a more efficient uh, floor. From an urban sustainability point of view, there was a, a precinct, 50 Bridge Street, that had essentially diminishing returns. And there wasn't a lot happening within that part of the city between the tourist attractions of Circular Key and the CBD. So by grafting on to an existing structure, giving this new structure uh, life. We've utilized the existing or leveraged the existing infrastructure that was already in the city, roads, infrastructural networks, and brought people back to a part of the city that was not attracting uh, others. And therefore, you're actually bringing value back into uh, the urban precinct. Additional shops uh, are, are opening up as a result, more and more people are utilizing that part of the city. So from an urban regeneration point of view, that was, that was key. When I talk about built work informing our unbuilt work, upcycling of the tower, one of the big environmental sustainable features of the project. For those of you who don't know, there's an existing tower with about 1,200 square meter floor plate, center core perimeter columns, um, very much a, a building of its time in the 60s. We sliced off everything north of the existing core and then grafted on another 1,200 square meter floor area. In saving some of the existing structure, which was about 65% of the existing structure, 95% of the core, we managed to save around 12,000 tons of embodied carbon in the building, which is a huge savings. And I believe the first time that that level of upcycling has been done on a tower uh, of that scale. And that 12,000 tons of embodied carbon saves about, or that's around three years of operational carbon. So it's a huge savings. And that's now informed some of our unbuilt work, which I'll I'll touch on. The Sydney fish market also looks at uh, social, environmental, and then urban sustainability. Everyone has a story about the fish market from when they were a child. But Sydney ciders, it's rare that they're going to the fish market on a regular basis. So the new design actually, first and foremost, it had to attract Sydney ciders again. It had to be a catalyst for activity. It had to be an integral part of the neighbourhood. So that's focusing on the social sustainability side of the new Sydney fish market and also the urban sustainability, the urban regeneration. How can we actually bring life back to that particular um, uh, typology. From an environmental point of view, 3XN, GXN, again, made design decisions that were solving problems. But solving problems is just engineering. So when you enhance a situation, when you accentuate the necessary items, you're actually starting to, to create architecture. In the case of the Sydney fish market, the roof is its most, let's say, salient feature. But the roof is more than just an undulating roofscape with hundreds of skylights uh, on top. It's actually performing. It's collecting every drop of water that hits it. It's reducing the solar gain. It's allowing for fresh air ventilation. And then of course, shading the environment, the internal environment. So this project GXN was heavily involved with. They wrote a series of white papers that helped convince the state of New South Wales that we could in fact reduce water usage by 50%. And the way that was designed into the Sydney fish market rooftop canopy was to create an undulating roof that picked up where it needed to pick up to add additional program in it and then drop in the opposing quadrants of the roof in order to uh, collect every bit of rain that actually lands uh, on the roof. That water was then, in the white papers, looked at to be reused for wash-down purposes, for example, and we used biofiltration and mechanical filtration. We wound up going with mechanical filtration in the end because the biofiltration wasn't quite fast enough. The speed at which they they used water uh, in the fish market demanded that it had to be uh, mechanical uh, extraction. But GXN was integral in working through, with our design team, the exact shaping of the roof, analyzing the flows, and then also documenting the uh, water filtration systems that would be used to convince, again, our client that we could reduce the the water usage by 50%. Um, We also looked at reducing the mechanical loads through this mixed-mode scenario with the roof that's ventilated and open-air. Uh, canopy scenario. So that reduced mechanical loads by 35%. So all of those decisions, whenever we put pen to paper, we're making informed uh, decisions. So again, it's a it's a form that's informed, not just form generation. And we talk about unbuilt work. Again, our built work is now informing our, our unbuilt work. And that's evident in some of the work we're doing in Northern Europe, which of course I can... Um, Discuss as well if you
1: like. Absolutely. As, as we loop back here, we can definitely see that there's a strong emphasis on sustainability and circular economy in all of the work you've just described. And above all, that social synergy is definitely very important at the heart of your design mm-hmm. ethos. Mm-hmm. And I think with that, uh, we can probably frame it where the built work is absolutely something we can see from harbour front now, mm-hmm. as we arrive in Circular Quay. Key, key Quad is definitely a defining building that's also exemplary in what mm-hmm. it can give inside and out. Mm-hmm. And the fish market is also going to be able to present us a new way of connecting with the waters around the Bays precinct that mm. we had never thought of. And mm. to your point, absolutely every Sydney sider knows of the fish market. Um, whenever we have guests and visitors that come through, we take them to go and visit the existing fish markets. And it will be very impressive to to arrive at the new um, fish market and have that ability to be able to interface with it in different ways that we had never thought we could because for the longest time that corner of Sydney has always been a bit segregated from um, mm-hmm. their near precinct. And with that, I think we can say that uh, it's very impressive that 3XN not only approaches... The building and its brief in its um external fabric with all of the program required, but also that intangible aspects of it and uh, we often see you work with engineers, graphic designers, urban planners to even psychologists and anthropologists. And I think I wanted to then touch on and as you loop back to other projects back in Northern Europe, how do you approach these projects and how do you collect all of these almost unbuilt aspects of it to inform your future works and pipeline?
2: A great question. Again, I think it's based on our built work, starting to inform our unbuilt uh, work. It's a cycle, of course, 3XN and GXN, it's architecture and research. And you, you know the question is, where does one start, and, one start, and the other stop, or stop and start? But they're definitely informing one another. Through our work on Key Quarter Tower and understanding the embodied carbon aspect of upcycling, We've been doing quite a bit of research and proposals in Europe where we're looking at two, two proposals for a project. One where um, we retain some of the existing structure, uh, another is where we knock it down and just build a new piece of architecture. Part of that is our own interest, but in certain parts of Europe it's required to actually prove that you need to knock down an existing structure. It's no longer enough just for a developer to say, I have this asset, I want to knock down the building and build something uh, new and fresh. You have to prove that the new project would meet a certain carbon budget. So GXN and 3XN, we're looking at projects, again, where we're looking at the life cycle analysis of a project, the construction costs, and the operational costs. And I'll give you an example of one scenario. There's a site with an existing uh, structure. We are now looking at um, one design that knocks down the building and another that is a partial uh, rebuild. So very similar to Key Quarter Tower where we're upcycling. And that upcycling looks at upcycling in two different ways. One where you knock most of the building down except the basement. And in this instance, 25% of the concrete that was used is in the basement. So that's still a huge embodied carbon savings. Another example of upcycling is to simply graft onto the existing building by, say, making the building slightly wider. And, of course, this site allows for something like that to happen. Not every site has that possibility, but carbon budgeting, understanding the impact of certain construction methods, certain column spacing for example, has uh, surprising results. Um, if you reduce your column spacing slightly, your spans obviously are less, which means the amount of steel you need and the amount of concrete is reduced. So you can get a surprising carbon savings just by rethinking your overall column grid. So there's different ways to look at reducing your overall carbon footprint and therefore making something much more sustainable. We, as a result of the Key Quarter Tower, there's um, When we think about carbon budgeting, there's four things that we like to talk about. Lowering carbon, the amount of carbon in your materials. Minimizing your material usage. So being, let's say, smarter about how you design a space and what kind of materials you're using. Trying to make a building with maybe a more compact footprint. So spaces that are not just used for one function, but over the its life typical uh, day in the life can be uh, used and programmed for a variety of events. An example of that actually with, is the fish market. The auction hall is only used from about 4 in the morning until 9 in the morning at best. And it's a huge space. So we've programmed that along with our client to be used as a demonstration uh, area, let's say for a cooking class, or there could be a movie viewing so the, the space is actually utilized for something other than that one function that, that very few people actually get to witness. So creating a more compact building, it's not doing with less, it's just being smarter about the space that you're, you're programming. And then the fourth way we like to talk about carbon budgeting is to think about it in terms of uh, reuse or mining from the existing site, urban mining. Uh, extracting materials um, that, that you might be able to reuse, and that's part of upcycling.
1: It's amazing because as you talk about all of this, you definitely approach our projects in a very in-depth manner and you definitely look at it beyond just the tangible brief requirements and that might be floor space area and just simply locating programs. Yeah. As we take a tour around your office, you talk about the future vision of this Sydney studio, uh, the models that will be on display, the virtual reality corners that we will be you know, using to test all of the designs and schematics. If it's possible, can you share with us some of the recent tools and techniques and even just beginning of design process on how that might be shifting and changing as you approach each project through the values that you talk about, uh, all of the intangible social aspects to even the environmental
2: sustainabilities that you follow in? An example, again, um, perhaps we've been fortunate uh, recently. We've had some projects that have been built that have really pushed the sustainable envelope, uh, so to speak. The new International Olympic Headquarters is, I think, a great example of how computational power technology helped not only the workflow of the project, but the multidisciplinary team to uh, resolve that complex uh, interface between solving for solar constraints, producing the facade, and then aligning that with the slab edge and the structure. What I mean by that is the team uh, at 3XN, we, rather than exchange models with the contractor and the facade manufacturer and the structural engineer, we exchange data sets. So every column, every column, every point um, on the facade is made up of a series of data sets When we would have to potentially push and pull the facade, that would obviously change where the slab edge needed to be. It would change and inform the column location. It would inform the facade manufacturer of a change in panel size. So that data set, almost in real time, would be in our consultant's office or our partner's um, offices and and, um, 3D systems. So that it was almost a real time, collaboration. And I think more and more we're going to see that where you're not exchanging a model. Sure, there's programs that can look for clash detection, and, um, but the way at which we need to resolve things and the speed at which we need to resolve and the complexity around trying to allow the budget to find uh, its home within the sustainable aspects of a facade, for example, it means that the more you can iterate, the quicker you can iterate, the easier you can actually find a solution, or the chances of finding a solution that meets all those requirements. You to find that you can reach that rather than somewhere in between. So rather than compromise on the design to meet a budget, you can, through this iterative process, exchanging data sets, reducing time, you can begin to fine-tune your facade so it works performatively, and from a budget point of view.
1: Mm. That's amazing because I think uh, what's most interesting uh, for our talk to date is that uh, you continue to reiterate that um, your built projects actually inform your unbuilt projects instead, Mm. which is probably not conventional but definitely required as we can hear you talk about it. For 3XN and for GXN, as they complement each other, how does uh, your studio Uh and organisation establish research topics because we can hear you Mm -hmm. invest heavily in r&d to be able to allow much of the problems of different scales to inform your next built project that then cycles back to inform all of the unbuilt projects that are necessary to push through in order to allow 3xn to grow is there a key uh, area that you guys often focus on or is it just purely opportunistic
2: i'd say it's a bit of a bit of both we 3 xn and have this idea that there's no waste in nature. So let's try to eliminate as much of it as possible in the construction industry. So there's a few things that we've been focusing on uh, quite a bit in our research. And that's timber construction or hybrid timber construction. Um, But also as part of that, but also separate from it, is design for disassembly. So when I talk about design for disassembly, it just means that say 80% of the architecture that we uh, inhabit it's a standard grid, it's uh, typical room spacing. The other 20% would be those moments that you interface with, let's say the entry of a, a tower lobby or that museum space that's memorable, the atrium, the entry. A lot of the other spaces, 80% of that might be a repetitive grid that you see on other projects. So is there a way for us to design around mechanical fastenings, and mechanical fixing mechanisms? So that at the end of the life of a particular building, you can disassemble that item, that building, and then reuse those components on other projects. In order to do that, there's something that the office has been exploring, and that's a material passport, where every item gets a certain code, and through the life of the building, the asset owner can go through and understand how much value um, is actually in the bill form that he has or she has. So, rather than demolish a building and only get about 2% of the value of, let's say, the structure, which would be used for road uh, rubble, you could potentially get the majority of that value back by reselling either the material or those components for another building. That's similar to the timber uh, structure and timber building focus that we've we've been looking at. We've just completed a project in Bornholm, which is the Green Solution Hotel. It's actually a net positive, energy positive uh, building. We've used timber construction as fully timber uh, building. Even the offcuts were used to make furniture. And that project actually has also led into uh, other research. How can we actually expand our timber spans So we do a lot of hybrid timber structures as well. And some of that research that we've been doing has now led to us recently winning um, a timber tower. Um, I can't tell you where uh, or for whom. But that research actually has then helped inform the office uh, and the design team about how to optimize uh, timber construction and hybrid timber construction.
1: That's great to hear. So we'll have to keep a watch on to find out where this timber building is and who is it for. So as we now loop back and towards the end of our talk here, if you can share with us just a bit more insight on your journey in coming to Sydney and how you've then taken two major projects as you reference here, key quarter fish Mm -hmm. market. Sydney uh, to almost completion to very soon we'll hopefully see the fish market open and uh, your experience with Australian clients, developers and uh, organisations and how that journey has been and maybe even um, our City of Sydney design competitions and how you've been able Mm. to implement much of what you've talked about today. Sure.
2: I would say the reason that I'm here in Sydney obviously is Key Quarter Tower that brought me over from uh, Copenhagen. Uh, where I was working from 2010. um, I moved to Sydney in 2016 to continue with the Key Quarter Tower. The design excellence process, I think, is uh, quite unique for Sydney. We haven't come across that process uh, anywhere else in the world. When I say it's unique, it allows... If the developer agrees that half the jury can be city officials or city planning officials, there's a 10% area bonus. So every FISO that every developer does, it's just on that edge uh, being you know viable. So that ten percent really makes the project potentially uh, move forward. So in doing that, the city is, keeps a focus on public domain, not so much the the image of the tower on the skyline. That's important, but it's more the that user experience to circle back to the architecture shaping uh, behavior. So that process is unique, and I would say because of that, we, um, and the work we were doing on Key Quarter Tower, we were invited to participate in the Sydney Fish Market competition. We had to obviously um, get invited uh, to be on the shortlist, but that was another design excellence project run through the state. So the state has also used that, that system. So those, those two projects allowed for what we'd like to focus on to come to the forefront of the design conversation all of our projects still have to meet efficiency. We have to hit every mark on that Excel spreadsheet. That's with every project globally. But the level of conversation that we can now have because of these design excellence competitions and the conditions that are put on those, I think the Australian market, at least in uh, New South Wales, from my experience, is far ahead of a lot of other major cities around the world. There's a level of discussion about uh, workspace that we have in Australia that we don't necessarily have elsewhere. Activity-based work, of course, is where things were. Now we're talking about neighborhood design where it's less about the individual finding their own space within a floor plate uh, and giving them that agency to choose. Now it's more uh, post-COVID talking about collaboration, health and well-being, team focus. You come into the office to actually talk and collaborate with your team. How can your design actually encourage or nudge your team, your staff, into a collaborative, productive conversation? And these aren't just conversations we have with the architects in the studio. These are actual conversations we're having with clients here. So I find Australia to be quite advanced in their approach to architecture.
1: That's amazing. So if we were to leave one thought with our listeners today, where would you like to see um, architecture progress and you know, what's, what's next for 3XN in Sydney?
2: There's a few things we're working on uh, here in Sydney. Um, unfortunately, I can't, I can't talk about those. But we're, um, we're applying a lot of what we've learned uh, in Sydney to the rest of the world. We have projects uh, in Japan um, as well that we're running um, through the Sydney studio. So 3XN, uh, we never want to expand just to expand or to grow. That ethos of architecture shaping behavior constraints and forming the architecture is very much who we are. And we only want to take projects on that we'll, we feel we can add value to. So what's next for us? I would say hopefully more built work uh, than unbuilt work. But we learn from each one, one informs the other.
1: Thanks, Freddy.
2: It's been great to have you on our show today. Thanks so much. Thanks for having
0: me. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our guest in this episode, Fred Holt from 3XN Architects. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing how architecture research is vital for the development of better buildings in the urban environment. Our sponsor Brickworks also produce architecture podcasts hosted by modernist fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy, and the Imagine production team was Sally Sue. This interview was edited by Peter Carter at Pillow Fort Audio Productions. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.